verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your minds not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, in him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Greg. We have prayed, so I'm going to carry on. Um, we looked last Sunday uh, through the first half of chapter 14. If you weren't here, I do encourage you to look back uh, and listen again. Um, Johnny used the quote to begin with, on the essentials unity, on the non-essentials freedom in everything love. And in this section of Romans, Paul is walking through what it looks like to love others. And here... What does it look like to love others in disagreement? And we heard and saw last week that there's a difference between the essentials and the non-essentials. 
See the beginning of our passage, verse 13, the therefore at the beginning. That is, therefore, in light of what we've talked about last week, in light of these things being disputable matters, the non-essentials, Paul is saying that over these matters there should not be division. And we saw last week that we can accept others by first committing to live in clear conscience before God, and second, recognising Jesus is Lord, not us, so he will judge on all matters. And so here, as we carry on, we see Paul explains how this plays out really practically. The therefore in verse 13 is to say, now, here's some practical instruction as to what this looks like. So this week we'll see what it looks like to disagree well. We've already seen in Romans that the disagreement that Paul is most specifically addressing is really particular in their context. And so Paul writes in verse 14, just have a look down through those verses we've just had read again. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed by what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Do you see that there's some conversation clearly around these disputable matters, around what it is that is just cultural to the Jewish people here, and what has been done away with, abolished as Jesus brings a new covenant. And, and so then, for these Jewish people that have become Christians, what is good conviction but not necessary? The specific example here is about food laws. Look at verse 14 and what Paul says about them. He says, he's convinced that nothing is unclean. But Paul's point here in what he says, it's not that he is right. That's not his main point. His point is how to disagree well. What Paul describes here as the weaker is a person that brings some baggage, some hangover here in this specific context from their Jewish heritage that that is difficult for them to shake, the decision to observe food laws. That means that they're convinced that to eat meat dishonours God. And so, look at verse 14, because they're convinced, even if their conviction is wrong, to choose to do so dishonours God. Imagine, imagine I've got a friend that I've not seen in a long time and I remember that he is a big Everton fan. He's just had a little boy and I go to visit. Imagine, as a Liverpool fan, I go to buy a Liverpool kit to give to this guy for his son, just to spite him. Imagine, not very kind, I know. But imagine I rock up and actually my memory has failed me. In fact, this friend of mine is a Liverpool fan. And so I hand over the kit that in fact is a perfect present and a well-received gift. Although I've given him the right shirt, what he really wants, it's done out of impure motive. That's what it means when it says, verse 14, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. You see, choosing to do something you are convinced is wrong, isn't right, even if you are wrong in your conviction. And so Paul's saying that although he's fully persuaded that nothing is unclean, 
Because this is a non-essential issue, be sensitive here to the weaker. What does Paul mean when he talks about the weaker and stronger? Do you see the verse 1 of chapter 15? Well, the, the context for the weaker and stronger here, it's so specific. Because in this example, the weaker is the person that comes from a Jewish heritage, holding to something which was good, right and true in Jewish history. And yet Jesus is now declared clean. Now, for us, because we're in a different period of history, in that we have God's word in its entirety as the full and final authority on all matters of faith and doctrine, it means that the, the weaker and stronger will never be quite the same as in this example. But in this case, the weaker brother comes with some cultural personal baggage coming from good conviction and a desire to honor God but in Paul's words is failing in its accuracy and the point is not necessarily to work out who the weaker is actually the fundamental thing here is is not who is proved to be right but on the non-essentials it's how we act with love For the sake of unity, for God's glory. Imagine for a moment that Fred and Dolly become members of Town Church. Here they are coming up on the screen. Uh, In fact, it's an AI-generated image of Fred and Dolly. I typed in their stories into AI, and this is what I was given. Dolly was raised by loving parents who held out the gospel to her. Within the life of the church, she was diligently taught in great detail. In some ways, some of her Christian friends that went to other churches thought that her church and her family were a bit old school. They had to dress really smartly for church. They were convinced of going to church twice on every Sunday. And in some of the more practical outworking of their family convictions, they were really quite precise and prescriptive. Dolly's parents were clinical in their conviction and their practice on giving exactly 10% of their household income on the very first day of each month to the local church. But as she was growing up, whilst she was warm to her family and her church, she had an immense appreciation. She did not yet trust in the Lord Jesus. That changed as she came to university and as she did she had an overwhelming appreciation of her church family that had raised her and her family that had taught her in her youth as a result having revisited what the bible says about money she now became personally convinced that 10 percent of her household income on the very first day of each month would go to the local church she married fred fred was at university with her. They lived in the same halls of residence. But throughout university, Fred really struggled with alcohol addiction. Actually, Fred was forced to take a year out uh, through going to rehabilitation clinic. And it was there and then that Dolly wrote letters to Fred, sent him a Bible. Fred came to trust in Jesus for himself And naturally, in reading through the New Testament, he took a specific interest to what it said about alcohol. 
he became especially convinced that it was not the right thing to drink alcohol at all again. Now, those two issues, whilst they're important, because in both cases God's word has something to say, Scripture explicitly warns against the misuse of both alcohol and money. And so if you are a member of town church, that is repeatedly and unrepentantly misusing alcohol, according to scripture, we as elders have a responsibility to step in and address it specifically. Similarly with money, the Bible is explicit against the misuse of money. Now, there might be all kinds of reasons why a member of town churches are unable to give financially to God's work. But in general, as the members of the church, we agree with one another in our membership document to give financially to the Lord's work. But if there was a complete lack of desire and unwillingness to give financially, with an underlying love of money being the reason, we as elders would step in and have a conversation and address these things because they're important matters. And not using these two things well is an indication of someone's disobedience towards God. Actually, in the specifics, we're not convinced that Scripture is completely prescriptive in how we use them. And so it might be that a member of town church this afternoon might look at Fred or Dolly and on the really specific outworking of those two things, say, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. It might be you could call Fred or Dolly the weaker brother or sister. So what is Paul's instruction to the stronger in faith? I think we can use Paul's comments in verse 5 and 6 as a helpful kind of framework as we read back through the verses that we've read. Just read with me from verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see, it's God who gives endurance and encouragement for the sake of unity for God's glory. And so we're called as God's people to endure and encourage. Through the passage, there's a bit of a play on the words avoiding tearing down, pursuing building up. There's a kind of up and down, how we build up and how we don't knock down. Endurance, right? at the heart of endurance, is to not be overcome by negativity. If you've uh, completed any kind of test of endurance, they say the biggest factor when getting to the point of actually taking it on is overcoming negative thoughts. You'll know that even if you've just gone for a run around the block. As soon as that feeling comes into your mind, I'm not going to make it. As soon as you start thinking, I'm not going to make it, it's damaging to your performance. And Paul's instructing us to endure with one another in love, in the disputable matters. If endurance is all about overcoming negativity, for the sake of unity, for the glory of God, then encouragement is all about actively 
and positively pointing others to glorifying God. That means sometimes there is actually a place for dispute. These instructions are predicated on bringing God glory with one mind and one voice. These matters are disputable matters. But Paul's call here is endure for the sake of God's glory. Eradicate negativity if God can be glorified in unity. Encourage for the sake of God's glory. Actively pursue positivity that elevates Jesus and brings God glory. Elise and I were, um, in the first couple of years of our marriage, we went to uh, visit friends in New Zealand. Uh, They had moved out from the UK to work in a church in Auckland. Um, The husband was the youth worker at the church, and we got invited uh, to go along on a kind of youth retreat. We were really keen. He'd been my youth worker uh, while he was here, and I was really keen to support him in his work as he'd moved out there. And we didn't quite know exactly what this um, was going to be, but he uh, was going to take some young people from his church on a trek of the Tongarua Crossing, which is a mountain pass uh, in the North Island. Um, He, uh, it became clear, is uh, pretty relentless in his planning and hard work. He is um, pretty adventurous, and he's a particularly kind of outdoorsy type. Now, it quickly became clear that the people that he'd invited to come and join were not adventurous or fit or clued up in mountain trekking. They were much more interested in looking at their phones and uh, spending time doing other things, but somehow they were enticed to come and join us on this trek. Elise and I quickly realised that the plan for the time was particularly ambitious. We had to trek with everything we needed to eat and cook and sleep um, and wear. And you would trek from kind of little wooden hut to little wooden hut. And there was a a course mapped out and there was recommended huts that you would stay in. And um, he, uh, as enthusiastic as he was, had decided that we'd miss uh, the stops and go for as long as we could. And quite frankly, the plan was ridiculous and we were trekking from sunrise to beyond sunset every day. It became really clear on the second day that some of these young people were not actually physically capable of doing this whilst carrying the big sacks that they'd been given. So for the sake of the weaker brothers and sisters, a few others and I would take a second pack, someone else's pack, and wear one on the front and one on the back. To this day, I think it remains the most testing feat of endurance I've encountered. Not just the physical test of going on the mountain pass, but the mental test of looking around and seeing these young people that should have been fitter than me, should have been really up for this challenge, just being dragged along whilst not carrying a bag and someone else carrying their bag. I think the reason that we were able to endure the people that were wearing two sacks was because as uncomfortable as it was for us, it was easy to see objectively in that moment the best thing for our group in pursuing our goal was to take the paths, in together making it across 
the mountain path. How do you endure? How do you endure as you look around and you see other people that are not quite like you? Well, look, God gives us endurance. And so the instructions that come are to, verse 13, not pass judgment. If someone else holds a different position on a secondary matter, don't judge them. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. You see, for the sake of what is essential, what is not essential is not to be judged over. And of course, that begins in the very way that we think about other people. In fact, Paul equates this kind of thinking to destroying God's work. Look at verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. That's the particular issue that was causing some disunity. Paul says if you even think negatively, if you speak or behave negatively towards someone who is trusting in Jesus and seeking to honour God in a conviction they hold, that is different to yours. You're essentially destroying God's work or tearing it down and so rather than harboring that negativity the instruction in verse one is we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves (coughs) you see maybe the, the temptation for us is when we've got any kind of difference in conviction even over small things with the other people of town church is to to show how you are right, to think that you are right, and to naturally look down on other people. And you see those instructions begin with the way you even think about other people, but will always result in the way that you act and then speak. Look at verse 15. Don't cause distress by the way you act out. See, on non-essential issues, where others in the church are seeking to honour God, if they land in a different place to you, we're to endure in love. For the sake of unity, even if the specific conviction is wrong, it's to squash negativity that leads to judgmentalism. Because you might look at verse 19 and think, Unity is the key thing. Just look down at verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. It's probably helpful as you read that verse to re-emphasise the context that this chapter is written in. Let Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Well, that is based upon what we've already read. On holding firm to the essentials. We must not make every effort at the expense of holding firm to sound doctrine. Well, what would it look like then for us to not just endure, to root out the negativity as we see people's differences, but to encourage? Imagine inviting Fred 
and Dolly round for dinner. And you don't know them too well, but as they come and join you at the dinner table, you begin to have a bit of conversation. And you hear a bit more about Fred and Dolly. You ask if Fred would like a drink, and he says, yes, please, I'll have a water. Can I just tell you why? And he tells a bit of his story. As you walk out into the kitchen to get him his glass of water, you look over to the side on the kitchen and see the bottle of Rioja that you bought in Aldi on Friday afternoon. And you think, ah, I was looking forward to that. You pour your glass of wine yourself anyway? Or do you have a second thought? We'll have a look at verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed, Because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do you do that? Or have a look at verse 21. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. See, you may well be convinced that it's not wrong to have a glass of wine with the meal, but in that moment, to avoid distress... And for the sake of unity, it might just be better to avoid. Verse 13 says, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Imagine the conversation is free-flowing and somehow you get on to financial giving. They've just become members of town church and somehow it's come up in conversation as they walk through what members uh, do at town church. And Dolly mentions how she has become really convinced that giving 10% of their household income on the first day of the month is the best thing to do. And with the financial chat, you feel slightly awkward, so you make your way out to the kitchen to check on the apple pie in the oven. And you have a moment with yourself thinking... What do I do here? You're feeling slightly awkward. And you think, well, I don't want to make a big deal of it, but I give 15% on payday as the first transaction that comes out of my bank. Surely that's better than you, Dolly. You've got a decision to make. Do you stride back in? Let them know that their way is not necessarily the best way? Or do you listen to the advice of verse 22? So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Why would you do that? Well, look at verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Look, maybe you're thinking, two funny examples in one sense. And... Play out that example and you think, that mealtime, it's got every danger that I'm going to be sat there in silence. Or at least I'll just be listening to Fred and Dolly talking a lot about why they think they're right. And you'd probably feel pretty exhausted holding it all in. But rather than just enduring and holding it all in, there's a call to encourage So you could ask about how Fred came to the conviction of not drinking alcohol. Ask him why he thinks like that. And if there's good, godly conviction, even if landed in a slightly different place to you, there's a brilliant opportunity to encourage. 
If another member at town church has come to a different landing place to you on how you discipline children, whether or not you should gamble, whether or not to drink alcohol, how you spend your money on cars and houses, the type of schooling that you would have your children use, There is good grounds to ask in love how they arrived at that conviction to do so. And if they've arrived there through resolving to honour God and desiring to bring him glory, then you can in love agree to disagree and encourage them in their conviction. It's when we do that that we will rejoice together. Look at verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Do you see the verses below? The prophecies found in the Old Testament speak of a time hundreds of years in the future, at the time of writing, where the people would be united under one head, Christ Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. Here's the point, at that time, it would have been absolutely mind-blowing for Jew and Gentile to be united in God's family. And yet, we are called to be together. For the sake of God's glory, even if we land slightly different places, Imagine a family in which the people are very, very different. And even in the midst of disagreement on disputable matters, the the people, the members of that family, were set out on honouring God in their convictions, in their decisions, and united in bringing him glory. What an encouraging place to be where I could be sat at the dinner table with friends that think slightly differently on one disputable matter and I'm encouraged by them and they're able to encourage me and I'm able to encourage them for the sake of God's glory. That's the family we're called to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you call us into one family and thank you that there is much that is clear in the good news of the gospel. Please would you help us to cling firmly to what is fundamental. And Father, even in these disputable matters that we might have at Town Church, in seeing differently, please would you cause us to endure and to encourage for the sake of unity and for your glory. Amen. Good, well we're going to um, stand and sing of the grace and peace that has come to us.
the only way in which we are transformed by God's work. And so, refreshingly reminds us that we have nothing to boast in. So let's stand and sing.